Hello and welcome to the Cloud Tweaks podcast, where we look at developments and stories dealing with cloud, cybersecurity, the Internet of Things, and other areas of business tech. I'm your host, Steve Prentice. Lots of people in the tech media world often like to equate data as the new commodity, the new oil, as it were. It is seen as having greater value than cash, and it, along with cloud technology that contains it, appears to have the lock on the future of commerce and of work. But what if it is not the new oil at all? We have as our guest today David Friend. He is the CEO and co-founder of Wasabi Technologies, which is his fifth tech startup. Wasabi is a hot cloud storage company that delivers disruptive storage technology that is one-fifth the price of Amazon S3 and faster than the competition with no fees for egress or API requests. Prior to Wasabi, David co-founded the cloud backup company Carbonite. He is a graduate of Yale and a David Sarnoff Fellow at Princeton. Any musicians listening might also be very interested to learn that one of his earliest companies, ARP Instruments, manufactured synthesizers used by Stevie Wonder, Peter Townsend of The Who, Led Zeppelin, and dozens of others, the ARP synthesizer. He is now the co-author, along with Tom Kolopoulos, who is the chairman and co-founder of the Delphi Group, of a new book entitled The Bottomless Cloud. I have often heard of cloud technologies being scalable, but I've never heard the term bottomless. What do you mean by that? Well, scalable is really a, a technical term, and it, it doesn't mean much to the average person. And in, in the book, uh, we promote this, this notion of this mindset of abundance of data, meaning that storage should be so cheap and ubiquitous uh, that the idea of storing data becomes like turning on a light. You don't really even think about it because the cost of, of turning on a light is trivial compared to the, the benefits. So when I think about bottomless, what we're really trying to think about is this, this notion that data is abundant and you shouldn't be worried about running out of space or you shouldn't be worried about the fact that, you know, the data storage is a, is a cost that is significant relative to its value. So that's, that's really the notion of bottomless, which is when you move to the cloud, you don't have a, a 100 terabyte box sitting there that's going to fill up. You have, you have an infinite resource, and as the cost of that resource keeps dropping, less and less uh, of the time will you be sitting around thinking about how much is it costing me to store this data, because everybody recognizes that the data they threw away last year I wish I still had it because now I've got some analytical tools that would let me extract some value from that data. Most organizations now have already committed to moving some or all of their data, both storage and mission critical to the cloud. So at this point in sort of cloud history, what are your opinions about that? Is that what you expected? Are things moving in a different direction from what you foresaw a few years ago? Where do you, what, what's your opinion of where we are right now in cloud transition? We're dealing with the speed of light, and, and that makes uh, a difference as to where you're storing your data. So some data needs to live right next to its computing resources because of speed. And, it, you know, an example of that is uh, somebody editing a, a video film where, uh, you know, you're moving massive amounts of data back and forth to a workstation. But, you know, that, to my mind, represents a relatively small proportion of the total data that's out there. This super hot data needs to live right next to the compute. But most data doesn't have to live right next to the compute. And so that data can move to the cloud. So for example, 
if I'm working here in my office on something that needs to have extremely fast response time, very, very large files, I want that data on a local device. But when I'm finished editing that file and I want to keep it for the next 10 years because it's valuable, might as well move it to the cloud where it can be managed efficiently, where it won't get lost, where it's safe, so forth. So I think that's kind of where we're at right now. And I don't think a lot of people are, quite honestly, a lot of people are really thinking through you know, what should be local and what should be in the cloud. But when you think about what's needed, it becomes pretty evident. And cost is a big issue because the world is used to buying EMC and NetApp storage devices. And, you know, now people are starting to realize that you you can store a petabyte of data in Wasabi's cloud, for instance, for less than just the annual maintenance on a petabyte of on-prem storage. So that's starting to become a significant factor. One of the most fascinating points in your book is that you state that data is not the new oil fueling the economy of the 21st century, but is instead the friction preventing companies and societies from realizing the tremendous value of your data. So what precisely do you mean by the friction of this? What I really object to in this this metaphor of, of data being the new oil is that oil is a commodity. You know, it doesn't matter whether the oil's coming from Texas or Saudi Arabia. Oil is oil. And that is not, in my view, a good way to think about data because when you look at the uh, the huge companies that are have grown up in the information age, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and so forth, uh, their data is highly proprietary. It's the opposite of a commodity. It's it's the uh, the asset that that gives their organization value. So I I think that expression of you know data is the new oil. I get the fuel analogy, but it really sends kind of the wrong message. Now, what is a commodity is the storage of that data. And I I totally buy the idea that storage could be the new oil in the sense that that it fuels uh, the business going forward. And so, you know, we store bits and bits themselves have no value. It's the information content that, that is, is to totally proprietary and gives most companies now in this uh, age of uh, information-driven business uh, their unique uh, assets. Okay, so and further to that point, you highlight the overly hasty elimination of data, such as police body cam footage being destroyed much too soon, for example, within seven weeks when the statute of limitations about a particular crime may last a lot longer. That's a very powerful analogy. Yeah, I mean, I can still remember uh, when my IT guy would come racing down the hall and chew me out because my mailbox was over 100 megabytes or something like that. You know, they were, we, we grew up in an era of expensive data storage, and it was rationed, uh, you know, in the same way that travel and lots of other business expenses were rationed. Um, but people don't think about rationing electricity anymore. You know, if you want to get a, a desk light that uses 40 watts instead of 7 watts, nobody's going to chew you out. And, and that's the mindset that you have to have. Uh, with with respect to data. And a lot of businesses still think about, gee, I, you know, I immediately need to go in and clean up all that old stuff that I've stored. And I think where we're headed is to a world where the data storage is so cheap, it's kind of like 
you know, you put that old furniture up in the attic and there's never a good, there's never a time when it's worthwhile trying to go figuring out how to clean it up, put it off till next year and put it off after the year after that, because who knows, someday you may need it, you know, some, somebody may need a couch and there you've got one. And I think that's the way people have to start thinking about data because Every time you turn around, somebody's coming up with some new technology. It could be facial recognition. It could be genomic data. It could be uh, just ways to go back and re-examine your order history over the last five years to get valuable insights into how you could run your business better and how you could get a competitive advantage. And if your mindset is sitting around thinking about, gee, I better go clean up all that old data that's sitting out there because it's costing me, you know, $1,200 a month to store it. Um, I think what happens is you're going to end up making a big mistake and you're going to, for, for the sake of, uh, of a few dollars of storage cost, you're going to forego the opportunity to possibly reap real value out of that data at some point in the future using techniques that you may not even be uh, aware of today. In your book, The Bottomless Cloud, you also ask your readers, where is the data friction in your business and how are you reducing it? So what does that mean and how does Netflix come into play here? There's two things about friction. So what, what I'm talking about in the book is two things, really. Speed, how quickly can I get at the data? So imagine if you were Netflix and you were storing your movies on tape in a robotic tape library. And when somebody sitting at home clicks the button to watch a movie, it took 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour before the movie started. That's friction. That's what I call friction in the business model. The same thing's true as if you go to your doctor's office and the doctor wants to pull up your x-ray on his screen and he has to sit there for 20 minutes waiting for it to, to appear. That's friction. That's what you want to you try to eliminate through the use of modern storage technology. And that's why I talk about the Netflix thing, because it's an example of a business that runs really well, where the, the acquisition of data, the, the recovery of data, which in this case would be movies, is frictionless. Um, it pre creates a wonderful customer experience. Now, the second thing that creates friction is complexity. I think Amazon currently has six or seven different tiers of storage, everything from really fast and expensive to really slow and cheap. And can you imagine if you had like three different electric plugs in the wall and one of them was for really good electricity and another one was for so-so electricity and the other one was for really crappy electricity? I mean, it's just... The, the more you move away from a sort of a one-size-fits-all or a one-size-fits-almost-all, uh, the more complex it becomes. And we've created a whole industry of consultants who make their living by trying to advise companies on the best tier in which to store their data. And, and I think that's just nuts because when you, when you add that to the cost of the actual storage, um, you know, the complexity that this creates is a huge barrier to, uh, to using the actual data itself. And, and I've been to conferences where people obsess over, you know, how much does it cost me to move the data from this tier to this tier? And how long does it take? And what kind of processes do I have to have running in the background and all this kind of stuff? 
And I think it's kind of nuts. I mean, at most, I would think there would be kind of three, three tiers, if you will, of data. Um, one is the hot data that I'm using right now that's backing up my transaction processing system, which is a tiny, tiny little bit of out of the whole world of data. Then in the middle, you've got data that you just want to store cheap and it needs to be accessible almost immediately. And then maybe if you really want to have another tier, you you dump the data off to a tape and you take the tape and stick it in a cardboard box, which then goes in a warehouse in, an, in Iron Mountain or something like that, never to be looked at again. But, you know, to have all of these different sort of live tiers of data that have reduced redundancy, uh, infrequent access, uh, glacier, glacier reduced redundancy. I mean, all of these things just boggle my mind how an industry has managed to make something that's simple into something that's really complicated. And, and that's the kind of friction that I think we want to eliminate and that we've tried to eliminate at Wasabi by having one tier uh, with one price and uh, easy to use, easy to buy, predictable pricing. To conclude, what advice would you give to listeners who are responsible for their organization's cloud policy going forward? What questions, for example, should they ask themselves? The, the cloud industry is, is very young and still very immature, uh, even though it's tens of billions of dollars in revenue for companies like Amazon. But, uh, you know, I can think back to, uh, you know, like when I was in college and you'd walk into a data center and every piece of gear in the data center had an IBM logo on it. And that's not the way data centers are today. You know, now there's probably 10 or 20 or 30 different vendors equipment that all works together. And some of it, you know, you buy your, your storage from one company, maybe you buy your networking gear from another company, you buy your CPUs from another company, you buy your top of rack switches from another company and so forth. So it's become a much more heterogeneous environment. And what we see today with Microsoft, Google, and Amazon is, I think, kind of the equivalent of those early days of the mainframe business, which is you've got a small number of big vendors out there who want everything. They want your entire data center in their cloud. And what I think the market will emerge to is you're going to find specialists. You're going to find, no matter how big you are, that Amazon can't be best at everything. So You'll have companies like Wasabi that'll be best of class in storage. You'll have companies like Packet.net that are best in class at bare metal compute. You'll find companies like StackPath that are best in class at content distribution. And in the future, the IT people will make that all work together based on standards. And you won't be putting all your eggs in one basket with, a, with an Amazon or a Microsoft or a Google. I would advise people to think about how the cloud is going to evolve going forward. And is the model that we're seeing right now, which is uh, bring all your stuff, put all your eggs in, in Amazon's basket or put all your eggs in Microsoft's basket, is that really the right way to go? So the second thing I would, I would say uh, is with regard specifically to data in the sort of traditional IT world, we've got this three, two, one rule, you know, three copies of your data on two different media and one copy offsite. And as we move to the cloud, that's still a good notion. And so if you're running your applications in Amazon's cloud, 
you should keep a copy of your data in Wasabi's cloud or in Microsoft's cloud or in Google's cloud. And that's the sort of the the multi-cloud theme that you hear people talking about from now on, because otherwise you have no leverage with the vendor. I remember when I was uh, CEO of Carbonite, you know, we had a, our entire email and office systems were being purchased through one of these big uh, hyperscalers. And, uh, and we also licensed some software from them. And we got in a dispute over these software licenses that had nothing to do with our email or calendaring or any of that sort of stuff. And guess what? We found we had no leverage with a vendor. And so we had no choice but to sort of roll over and pay up. And so I, I think that's the, the idea that you should distribute your data, distribute your loads among multiple vendors is really a better way to go than saying, okay, I'm going to just jump in with both feet and depend on one vendor for everything in my entire company because you really lose your leverage when you do that. Well, David, this has been amazingly fascinating and certainly uh, very, very topical. Um, where can people find out more about Wasabi and about your book, The Bottomless Cloud? Uh, you can order the book on Amazon, uh, The Bottomless Cloud by David Friend and Tom Kolopoulos. And as far as Wasabi, you go to the Wasabi website and you'll see we are exactly like Amazon S3, except one-fifth the price and faster. And uh, that's really all you need to know. <laughs> this is, there's so many great uh, points you have there, and it's just perfectly timed. So thank you very much. This is just excellent. Hosting of the Cloudweeks podcast series is made possible by ISC Squared. Advance your cybersecurity career. Get certified and set yourself up for success. ISC Squared helps you with education and exam preparation for CISSP, SSCP, CCSP, and a number of other vital security certifications. With a range of teaching and prep kit opportunities and a vibrant online community, ISC Squared gives you the tools to move ahead in the ever-changing world of cybersecurity. You can visit them at isc2.org. That's I-S-C and the number two, dot org. And as for us, you can check us out at cloudtweaks.com and follow us on Twitter at cloudtweaks. If your company is looking for some great exposure to hundreds of thousands of decision makers in the IT, cloud, and related industries worldwide, please do get in touch. We can craft a campaign that will get you noticed through our website, social media, and newsletter channels, all of which enjoy substantial readership from the right kinds of people. The theme music for the CloudTweaks podcast was obtained through podcastthemes.com. And of course, if you like the CloudTweaks podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. We are always interested in learning what we can do to bring quality news to you. Until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening. Thank you.